So uh, as we continue our Lenten series, uh, The Way of the Wilderness, I just wanted to kind of um, take a step back and put it in context, kind of frame it with the church calendar, which we do periodically. But uh, the icons that kind of surround the room mark the church calendar. One of the things that I think is important about the church calendar is that it gives us a certain rhythm in life a rhythm that is somewhat counter to the rhythm that we find in our culture. As opposed to the rush, rush, busy, busy, um, spend, accumulate, uh, get more stuff, the calendar of the church is kind of marked by patience and kind of a slow cadence. Um, What you might even call a waste of time or maybe a boring or slow period. A friend of mine, who uh, I lean on quite heavily when I um, kind of preparing for sermons, told me this past week, he said, Robbie, your sermons should be more boring. I'm like, maybe they already are. (laughs) (laughs) But what would that mean? And what would that do to us if, if our time together did disrupt us? Like, If we can just come to church and we can feel good and it's comfortable and it's smooth and the music's nice and the lighting's nice and the pictures are nice and the sermons are nice, we can kind of come and then go and then church just becomes another one of the many things in our lives. So I have church and that's good and then I have my work and that's good and I have my relationships and that's good. But then how is is this different? Now part of me might say, why should it be different? Can it just kind of coalesce with the rest? But, but part of me uh, thinks this. <clears throat> it thinks, part of me thinks that our time together should be a disruption. It should cause us to pause and to realize that the, the calendar that we're in, the, the time that we have, is the time of God. And it's not just our regular time. It's not just life as normal. It is different. And so the church calendar, as you know, begins with Advent. And it's marked by the star to my left and your right. And it's those four weeks that uh, prepare us for the celebration of the birth of Christ. Um, Advent starts the church calendar, not January 1, but the four weeks before, before Christmas. The next time, the next part of the season, the second one, is Christmas. We see Mary and Joseph, and uh, they're around the baby who has his hand just sticking up. You don't really see it. You've got to squint or get close. But but Christmas is not just a day. Christmas is also a season. It's Christmas time. And Christmas time, we celebrate the birth of Christ. We celebrate this um, coming into the world of our Savior, of the one who would kind of um, redeem and even transform humanity. Christmas time comes to an end, and it begins epiphany. And the third icon is of Jesus' baptism, and this epiphany that, that Jesus is not just the divine Son of God, but Jesus is anointed as the Christ. Uh, epiphany means manifestation. So we uh, celebrate these kind of manifestations of God in our lives. And we've, we've done that uh, this year. And it brings us around 
to this kind of solemn picture of Jesus with a crown of thorns on his head, his eyes are downcast, and this represents the season of Lent. It's the season that we are now in. It is a, it is a dry, it is a barren, it's a heavy uh, season in our lives. We'll come back to that in a second. Lent does then prepare us in the same way that Advent prepares us for Christmas. Uh, Lent prepares us for Easter and the resurrection. And Easter, like Christmas, is not just a day. It too is a season. It is Easter time. And it lasts for 50 days. It lasts from the day of the resurrection until Pentecost, uh, which is the last icon. And it is, it is the only of the days or the seasons of the calendar the only one that is marked by a single day. Uh, Pentecost is not a season. Um, the day of Pentecost had come, and the Spirit is poured out, and it is poured out into ordinary time, the regular times of our lives. A regular time, which I believe not to be marked in the same way that our normal calendars are marked, but regular time in the sense that now our time has been shaped by our time with God. And it's that time that we now live in. Um, this uh, draws me to another thing. I read this um, from uh, Chris Green's book, Sanctifying Interpretation, and we talked about it recently in cl class, and then I was with Chris last week. But uh, what, what does our separation from the world supposed to look like? Uh, and he has a very interesting uh, read of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where it says that we should not be unequally yoked. You know this passage? At the very least, you probably remember it from your days in the youth group when you were told not to um, uh, evangelism. Dating is not a thing, right? So we, we tell our young ones that they should only date Christians because you're most likely marry someone who you date. It's unlikely that you marry someone you haven't dated. And so if we want you to just marry Christians, we want you to just date Christians, and so no missionary dating or no evangelism dating. And to not be unequally yoked sounds like we are trying to distance ourselves from the world. Um, but Chris makes an interesting point. We are distancing so ourselves from the world. We're coming out from the world, right? This is what the word church actually means. Ecclesia, called out. We're called out so that we are not like the world. But we're being separated in order to be with Christ. And where is Christ? He is in the world. So that Christ is regularly with the world, in the world, and with the people of the world. So if we're being separate, it's not for the sake of being separate. It's for the sake of being with Christ and Christ is in the world. So being unequally yoked doesn't mean that we somehow avoid the world. It means that we, are, we, are, we, eventually, we eventually end up in the world, but we're in the world not in the worldliness that we had once been in or in the worldly way that we had once been there. But now we are in the world as Christ is in the world so that we are with God in the world closely in relationship with the world. The friend of sinners, uh, the one who is willing to eat with the tax collector and the Pharisee, um, with the prostitute and the disciple. A table that is kind of radically, radically open. 
So what might this have to do with Lent in our series of The Way in the Wilderness? So in addition to the icons that we sit in between every Sunday, uh, we also seek uh, to kind of express the meaning of our series, not just in the sermons that we preach, but also in the pictures that we use and in, in the very decoration of the stage. So whether or not you can see it, you might need to squint. Uh, but the stage is designed to look somewhat like the inside of a tent. The canvases that flow out and down and the canvases on the back are as though we've come into the tent that is in the wilderness. And the, and the uh, logo or the um, graphic for this series, Way of the Wilderness, looks like we're in the desert. Uh, the Judean uh, wilderness, the Judean desert, uh, looks a lot like uh, northern New Mexico or northern Arizona or southern Utah or southern Nevada. Uh, what you saw in uh, the Looney Tunes with Roadrunner and uh, Wally e. Coyote. So I don't know if you, if you look at that graphic and you think, oh yeah, I think I can just barely make out the Roadrunner and some kind of Acme rocket is malfunctioning for the, for the uh, coyote. But it's in these kind of dry, desert, kind of harsh places that we can meet God in ways that we can't meet God when we're comfortable. Uh, Belden Lane in his book, The Solace of Fierce Landscapes, uh, says that it's, it's the harshness of these desert realities, these kind of mountains made of rock with little to no water, with too much uh, sunlight, um, the, the kind of the scarcity and the harshness of the physical terrain kind of represents kind of the difficulties that we find in lives. And so we've been focusing in on the children of Israel and their wandering or their way in the wilderness. And so today we're going to talk about bread and water in the wilderness. So in Exodus 15, 16, and 17, we get the story when the children of Israel, or they'll be Israel in the future, the Hebrews are being led by Moses and they've come through the Red Sea and they come to an oasis. That seems appropriate. And the oasis, though, that they've come to, they, they name Mara, which means bitter, because the water um, tastes bitter, it smells bad. Uh, so once again, as Floridians, there's so much sulfur in the water here that, you know, sometimes your neighbor's uh, sprinklers come on and you're thinking, like, somebody, like, dropped a box of uh, rotten eggs. You look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Do you guys not also have the same issue? Yeah, the kind, of, the kind of spoiled smell of the water sometimes makes you wish we had more fresh water, right? So uh, our fresh water is all north of us, for those of you who don't know. Um, we rely on rainwater and we rely on rivers that are flowing south, north of us. There is no fresh springs uh, from, from where we are south. Um, we are in the uh, Peace River Aquifer and we're very dependent upon that. You should know these things because, <laughs> because while it's nice that you can just go to the faucet and turn it on and there's fresh water, that's not, that's not always the case in the world. And it might not always be the case for us. I'm not trying to be overly apocalyptic, but I'm saying you should, you should be aware of where your fresh water resources come from. So this water with Moses and the Hebrews is bitter. It's undrinkable. And so as the story goes, Moses takes a piece of wood, 
throws it into the oasis, and the water becomes sweet. So they can drink it. And then they, they move down the road, not very far, and they come to a second oasis, Elam, and there are 12 springs. So that's quite a bit of water. And there are 70 palm trees, uh, which would provide, I think, quite a bit of shade and, and fruit. Uh, what's interesting, uh, the early church seemed to consistently read this story of Mara and Elam uh, Christologically. That is, uh, the early church fathers didn't read this as some kind of historical account of Moses and the Hebrews, but they kind of read Christ into the story. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating way to read, and it is pretty consistent with how they, how they read this passage. So for them, the piece of wood that's thrown into uh, the oasis represents the cross, and the water that's become uh, fresh then represents the word of the Lord, so that the water had been bitter, but it has now become fresh. It's a very interesting uh, look at how to, what it means to kind of be with God and follow God. This idea, sometimes perhaps you've heard that the Old Testament is about law, and the New Testament is about grace, and the Old Testament about works, and the New Testament about faith, and the Old Testament you know, is about judgment, and the New Testament is about deliverance, and we have the law in the Old Testament, we have Jesus in the New Testament, and thank God we got Jesus, because who could live without nasty law? Uh, the problem with that is, well, it's multiple. Um, uh, one is, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And when Jesus does seem to speak of the law, he doesn't speak of it as some high standard that no one could reach. He kind of treats it as, as a low standard, as that's a good place to start. Um, so he'll say, you have heard it said, don't commit um, adultery, but I'm telling you not to lust. You have heard it said, love your neighbor, I'm telling you to love your enemy. Uh, you have heard it said, um, what else does he say? <laughs> Drawing a blank. What's that? Don't murder. Right, thanks. It's nice to have a congregation that knows the scriptures. You've heard it said, don't commit murder. I'm telling you not to hate. Uh, does it sound like Jesus is treating the Old Testament as some unattainable law? No. But there is this way, no matter how good a rule is, no matter how good um, a guideline is, it can kind of become bitter to us right? It can become just some form of legalism, some way that we measure ourselves or we measure others and we use it as a stick. And there are often some of us in the community that get the short end of the stick across our backs, right? Because they're not behaving in a certain way. But that's not the way it was intended to be used. And that's not what it's for. So the, again, the early church fathers weren't dismissive of the law. But they did understand that the law had become bitter. It had become this thing that people resented. It, be, it became something they didn't want to follow. But if you throw in the cross, it sweetens it up. We understand that, that following God and behaving like God and depending on God is the best way to live. And that these rules then don't become these kind of harsh things that we can't live up to. They become these kind of uh, solid guidelines that we can lean on.
that we can learn to treat the other as we would want to be treated, that we would treat the foreigner as one who is native-born, that we would care for, for the sick and the outcast, that we would, we would attain to the weightier matters of the law, mercy and justice and righteousness. And this is what we get when we follow Jesus. So the, the next part of the story is that now they, they have this uh, fresh water, um, but, but they're in the desert. They're in the wilderness. Uh, and so what are they going to eat? And so once again, they kind of come to Moses. <clears throat> and I've often heard it said, kind of focusing on the Hebrews and the fact that they were grumbling as though these people were just kind of the most um, self-centered, uh, unfaithful, um, kind of ridiculously... Um, uh, sensitive people. I mean, God just delivered you from, from slavery in Egypt. Can't you make it a week without complaining? Let me ask you something. Has any of you ever been to the desert? You're in the desert without food or water? How long do you think it'd take for you to say, I'd really like something to drink and eat? That is, I don't think we should cast this kind of um, horrific standard uh, onto the Hebrews, Right? They, they are out in the wilderness. They're out in the desert. And they need something to eat. And so they come to Moses and say, Moses, we need something. What's interesting now is we get the story of the manna and the quail. I was mentioning to Mikkel before the service, I don't think I ever hear about the quail. In fact, I think I'd actually forgotten about it until I started reading this text in order to prepare for the sermon. Like I've heard about the manna, the manna I know, but quail. So it was bread in the morning and it was meat in the evening. But that doesn't sound so bad, right? And so they had this stuff to eat in the morning. Uh, and interestingly enough, it was only good for that day, except on Fridays. On the stuff they picked up on Fridays was good for two days. Uh, because it would be good for that day and for Saturday. Because there would be no manna available to pick up on Saturday. Because Saturday was to be the day of rest. Now, the extent to which um, everyone practiced it correctly is, was variable. Uh, but nonetheless, this is what they, they had. So they had this manna in the morning, some kind of cracker or wafer, and they had quail in the evening, and it sustained them um, in the desert. In fact, perhaps it even more than sustained them. Um, because it said they all had as much as they wanted. So some gathered a lot and some gathered a little, but at the end of the day, everybody was full. Like everybody had all that they needed. They, they weren't quite sure what the manna is. In fact, uh, some of the early uh, church fathers, again, translate manna as, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, what my kids say when I've prepared breakfast. <laughs> which might be what you're saying about this sermon. <laughs> what is this? What is he talking about? Yeah, what is this stuff? Is it, is it bread? Is it cracker? How does it sustain me? How does it sustain us? How long will we have it? Is, is, will there be enough for tomorrow? How does this work? You know, we could ask that about a lot of things we do in the Christian circles. How does baptism work? 
Really? We, we fill up a tub. We take someone. We push them down under the water. Like, who thought that was a good idea? We pull them back up. How does baptism work? Little side note, did anybody see the Greek Orthodox baptism on Facebook lately? You know, they do the triple dip of the baby. Right? We should do that here. Everybody's like, I'm not bringing my babies. But how does baptism work? What, what is this? Or communion. I mean, how does communion work? It's that little flat wafer, and we even use gluten-free. I mean, how could, could that work? And this little shot glass, uh, and we use, we use grape juice. Maybe we should use wine, but in any case, we use this little bit of juice and this little flat cracker, and is that supposed to do something for us? How does that work? What is it? This is the beauty of, of following God. Paul will say it like this, that, that preaching is foolishness. And uh, sometimes I think, well, yeah. And other times I think, well, no, preaching is good. But the way of the Lord, the, the, the giving of life, uh, the sustenance that it gives us is, is a bit of a mystery. How does baptism work? How does communion work? Uh, these, these, uh, the, the water of Mara is often tied, again, in church history to the waters of baptism. And the bread of manna is often tied to the bread of communion. That these stories become types for these realities that we find in Jesus. I don't have some formula for you. I can't tell you uh, exactly how it is that being baptized to going under the water and coming back up in a room full of your brothers and sisters in Christ changes you internally and externally. But it does. And I can't tell you how the taking of communion provides food for your soul but it does. And so we baptize in the sweet water of Mara and we serve communion, inviting all to come to the table because we believe that God, that the God of the Hebrews, that the God in the desert is our God. And we sing songs about I will follow you and great is thy faithfulness and where does my help come from? Going back, for, for you artistic ones in the group that hate when people uh, over uh, speak uh, art, um, forgive me, uh, but for those of you who uh, maybe don't always catch the subtleties, you might pick up on the fact that our music has changed in the Lytton season, right? Instead of the full, full band, we've kind of squashed them over here in the corner. We've gone to a more kind of, um, more acoustic-ish kind of drummy feel. 
It's almost like they're in a tent camping out in the wilderness. There's some intentionality to that. Part of it is because I just like it, and I got a little bit of influence about what goes on around here. Uh, but part, part of it is, is also thematically for us to get into this kind of rhythm or feel. For what it's worth, I voted for an actual fire over here with a flame, but luckily that got voted down because <clears throat> I'm a bit of an idealist, not a realist, and we need people to say, don't catch the church on fire. But we do. We want you to, we want you to feel this rhythm. And we want you to experience the manna in the wilderness, uh, a heavenly bread. One of the things that I love about manna is that there's nothing you can do to make it. That you, you, you don't plant it, you don't harvest it, you don't grind it, you don't mix it, you don't bake it. You just pick it up. There's so many things in our lives that we do work for. But forgiveness, the love of God, grace, mercy, acceptance, welcome, invitation to this table is not based on anything that you do or that you will do. You are God's children. You have been chosen by God and called by God, whether or not you know God. <laughs> and if you come through the doors at Oasis, at this Oasis, not at Mara or Elam, but the one on Winter Lake Road, you are welcome to this table. Because it's not our table. It's the Lord's table. And like the manna that fell in the wilderness or appeared in the morning on the dew, so too, this is just for you to take and to eat and to see that God is good and God is faithful. I know sometimes we think or we hear that desert experiences are those hard times. Like you hear someone say, I'm having a desert experience. Those are tough. And I'm not here to kind of glorify the tough times in life. I've been there, right? I've been on aisle seven when you have the you know, 16-year-old or 15-and-a-half-year-old uh, who'd never seen the food stamps before saying, food stamps on aisle seven. And I'm like, no. Oh. I know what hard times are like. And again, I'm not glorifying those. But there is something about hard times when things are out of our control. Not to say that they ever are in our control, but when we realize they're out of our control. That enables us to hear and see and feel and experience God in ways we can't when we're really comfortable. The desert time for the children of Israel is some of their best time. They will refer back to it again and again. 
Do you remember when we were just in the tent? Do you remember when things were tough and God provided? Do you remember those times? So those times aren't easy, but those times are good. And if you find yourself in those times, then I encourage you to pause, to listen in the silence and in the dark, and to remember that God is God. that God is our provider and that God can provide things for us that we cannot possibly provide for ourselves. So we take communion today. Uh, Servers are coming now. Uh, They're going to serve you the elements of communion. I ask that you hold on to them and we'll all kind of partake together. The table is a mystery. Um, C.S. Lewis calls the communion uh, food for our souls. So in the same way that our bodies need food daily or almost daily, for some of us multiple times a day, that our souls need food too and our souls are fed Uh, in a variety of ways, in prayers and songs, in the reading of Scripture, in the communion of saints, but that our souls are also fed in the very taking of communion. So maybe, like the Hebrew children in the wilderness, you might be asking the same question, what is this? And uh, maybe it is kind of beyond our explanation um, explanation but I can say this that like the water that was turned from bitter to sweet and then came in abundance at Elam so too uh, is the ways of God he can take that which is bitter and turn it to sweet and then provide it in abundance. And like the the manna in the morning or the quail at night, um, in our desert and wilderness experiences, those kind of times in our lives, God can and will provide. And we can find solace in the fierceness of the landscape and know that though we be transients and tents that our God is with us that his spirit is upon us that he goes out before us by a cloud by day and a fire by night that we can sing songs like, I will follow you, and great is thy faithfulness. And where does my help come from? 
because we know the God of the world.